Hi friends, this is Sarah Bessie, and this is an experiment. After repeated requests for an audio version of the Field Notes essays and repeated attempts to actually do it, those all failed, if that's not clear. I thought I'd make another attempt. This is obviously not a podcast, nor is it any good in terms of audio quality. It is literally me in my basement with a mic. I have four kids home during a pandemic. I think my husband might be doing something with a leaf blower outside, but I'm not sure. I just wanted to record this for you and we'll see how it goes. Um, all week long, those of you who are subscribers to Field Notes have received an email from me, like the one you um, likely clicked on in order to listen to this. And we've explored uh, one of Jesus's I am statements together. This isn't a traditional Holy Week fair, but I can't say that I've ever been known as someone who is too married to liturgical tradition. <laughs> this may work and it really may not. So let me know what you think. And in the meantime, let's get to today's final reflection. This is called I Am the Resurrection and the Life. This is Field Notes Holy Week for Easter Sunday, and I'm glad you're here. Let's begin with our reading. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if you loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, 
Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then to others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe and with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. And that's in John chapter 11, verse 17 to 44, in Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. All right, let's begin. You know, typically when I talk about Easter, it is joyous and celebratory, a bright sunshine of a day with words to match. We would be gathered in homes and churches. We feast together. We sing loudly. We clap our hands and holler. Well, you do if you're from a charismatic tradition like myself anyway. There are processions and sunrise services and lilies on our altars. The flowers have burst into bloom along with all of our hearts. After all the quiet of Lent and the march towards Good Friday's horrors and death, the darkness of Holy Saturday, we finally turn towards Eastertide's new life with anticipation. He is risen. And you say, he is risen indeed, and the crowd cheers, and we all embrace. Death, where is your victory, and where is your sting? But today's Easter feels different, doesn't it? Even the way we are celebrating Easter is different. Only the mightiest of arrogant fools are gathered in churches right now. The rest of us are celebrating through screens and social distancing. We are alone or cloistered with our families only. People all around the world are afraid and anxious. The shadow of death has fallen for many. And those of us who are grieving are unable to even gather. And this isn't how Easter is supposed to go. But to be honest with you, even before I knew about a global pandemic, I was uh, dreading this Holy Week in Easter. I think that's why I knew that I needed these past seven days with Jesus, these ones that we have spent together leading to this Sunday, and so it's been very nice to have you along for the journey. Um, that's because it was during Holy Week last year that my friend Rachel Held Evans took a very hard and scary turn um, away from life. And the dates don't quite match up because church calendar is hard, but the days of my heart are there right now because I was marking time by this rhythm. And so before most of the public knew what was happening, we were already afraid all Holy Week. And by the time the news about her condition broke on Friday, on that Good Friday, we were already in the deep dark. And I'll be honest with you, some part of me really believed last year that Easter Sunday would be our miracle day, that God would heal her and she would wake up whole herself. I think it's that really stubborn bit of old healing ministry influences from my formative years just kind of clinging to my soul because I couldn't seem to stop my brain from hoping, wouldn't it be just like God? 
to raise her up out of that hospital bed on Easter Sunday, even though I knew in my rational brain that that kind of thinking was dangerous uh, to my soul and untrue of my theology. We started hashtags on Twitter, and if sheer quantity of prayer, let alone prayers of the righteous, made miracles happen, we were ticking every box. And I held vigil. We prayed earnestly in every way I have ever been taught to pray for a miracle. And Easter came and went without a resurrection in the way I wanted it to come for Rachel. She died just a couple of weeks later during the season of Easter. She was just 37 years old and she left behind a grieving husband and their two tinies, a family. All of us who love her, there are so many never spoken and never shared memories of those days that I feel like I have been holding in my hands like a broken harp for a year now. And it has been a hard grief. And it felt wrong because it is wrong. And so this Easter Sunday, Christ has risen. But what about the rest of us? Because the whole world is in the valley of the shadow of death still. It is hard to sing about Easter, about resurrection, about life. When death does sting, when death does feel victorious. Easter is in the dark again for so much of the world. Uh, in her powerful book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, As many years as I have been listening to Easter sermons, I have never heard anyone talk about that part. Resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies, the sound of trumpets, bright streaming light. But it did not happen that way. If it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air, sitting deep in the heart of Organ Cave. I let this sink in. New life starts in the dark, whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb. It starts in the dark. I'm just so grateful for writers like Barbara Brown Taylor. Because Holy Week still feels dark, even on this Easter Sunday, the biggest day in the church calendar. It's not that different, though, from how God usually works, is it? It's in the dark that new life begins and began and is beginning still. Now, full disclosure. I am not immune to taking passages of scripture completely out of context and meaning for my own purposes. And this is your fair warning. I'm about to do that very thing. My only excuse is that when the words of the Bible run through your whole memory, sometimes certain lines come back to you at odd moments, even if they don't quite fit or belong to that moment. Please nobody tell Pete M's on me. So this is that. Last Easter tide. As we mourned Rachel, Psalm 137 came to me, and I was reminded of that again this year. It's an odd one because it's a song of exile, and it's an, actually an imprecatory psalm. The psalmist had recently returned from Babylon after years of exile from Israel. 
So it is definitely not mine to claim, nor is it particularly relevant here, but there was one line in there that stayed with me from verse 1 and 4. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? After Rachel died, um, I wondered how to sing the songs of the Lord in this foreign land of her absence and broken hopes in our collective grief in the sheer unfairness and senselessness and rage, rage of it. I felt as if I was sitting by the water in a foreign land, and so I just wept. Over the years, I have somehow managed to sing through car accidents and physical pain, through lost pregnancies and family tragedies and surrendered vocation and lost income and being exiled by our church family and a million other ordinary heartbreaks. But losing Rachel last year just broke something, and I'm only on the shore of the sea of sorrow from Rachel's family. This uh, foreign land makes it hard to sing the old songs of resurrection. I can't sing them in the uncomplicated ways that I used to sing them anymore. I think I forget those words. I have other images in my mind than resurrection right now. I find that I'm thinking, but what about the ones for whom that isn't true? A lot. What does the resurrection and the life mean when we are grieving, when we can't sing the songs in this foreign land? And that's my underlying question this Easter. At first glance, maybe it feels odd that we are with the story of Lazarus today. After all, Mary and Martha got the miracle we didn't. Jesus raised their brother up from the dead. That didn't happen for us. Likely didn't happen for you and the one that you love. And it isn't happening all around the world as thousands of families find themselves in the foreign land of grief due to COVID-19. But this is where we are today standing outside of a tomb with Jesus, and he weeps with us. Standing outside a tomb with a promise, today's anchor, I am the resurrection and the life. It has always been the resurrection that gets us Christians into trouble. <laughs> Most of us insist upon it. It's not this secondary issue of our faith, like whether or not you should eat shellfish, or if babies should be baptized, or what kind of carpet to put in the foyer, or whatever nonsense split a million Baptist churches. The resurrection is the axis upon which our whole understanding of God's story turns. I still believe Everything will be made right somehow. I have no idea what that means most days. But I believe in the core of myself that there will come a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's from Revelation 21.4, by the way. We believe that our lives are testimonies of that wild resurrection, and even our 
Sacrament of baptism is a mirroring of what we believe about the resurrection, that the descent into the water, we mirror Christ's descent into death, and with our rising up out of the water and into the world again, we mirror Christ's resurrection from death to life over and over. Paul wrote to the Romans that that's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, we leave the old country of sin behind. When we come up out of the water, we entered into a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. This country of grace is a homecoming for us. It's not an exile. The last time that I read the story of Mary Magdalene encountering the risen Christ, it's over in John 20. Um, it was at Rachel's funeral. I nearly didn't make it through. I battled for every strangled word. The empty tomb and then Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene in the garden and commissioning her to preach the resurrection back to the boys. That was, was one of our favorite stories. And I have, I actually have that as an icon right, right in front of me right this minute. And I last read that particular story of resurrection beside Rachel's casket in front of a church topped with sunflowers. Something about that haunts me. Anyway, like most of us preachers, Rachel usually used to start a sermon with a passage of scripture, but unlike the rest of us who are prone to peddle certainties after she read the Bible to the congregation, Rachel used to say, on the days when I believed this, before she launched into her sermon. I loved this about her. It spoke of her humility and her honesty, her wry admission of her own doubts, her humor and refusal to take herself too seriously. <laughs> Almost every time that I heard her say it, there would be this audible sigh of relief from everybody in the room, including me. And so, yes, Jesus is the light of the world, the bread of life, the gate, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. I am who I am, and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And on the days when I believed this, it changes everything. On the days when I believe this, I'm not afraid, and I know we will all be free. On the days when I believe this, I know that Jesus was resurrected and his beautiful, brown-skinned, scarred, and wounded body is alive. On the days when I believe this, I am certain we will also be resurrected and death will not have the final word. And all our tears will be wiped away and there will be no more night, no more hunger, no more wounding, no more loss, no more goodbyes. On the days when I believe this, I believe that death is a dawn, never the last word. On the days when I believe this, I know that the real miracle is that God knows the dark and the sorrow just like we do. On the days when I believe this, I believe that ongoing hope of resurrection changes how we engage in our lives as they stand right now, as we love and know and walk with God who brings life out of death 
order out of our chaos, healing out of our sickness, wholeness out of our brokenness. On the days when I believe this, I know God has not finished with this story yet. But there are days when I don't believe it. And on those days, I still have this. Emmanuel. God with us. This Easter, it may be all that some of us have. We can't quite get to resurrection and life yet. But in that place of exile, we can rest alongside God. God with us who weeps with us, which is our country of grace for today. It has to be God with us in every hospital room, at every graveside, in every dark room after everyone else has gone on to their normal lives. God with the ones for whom the good news is truly good news and those who aren't sure yet. God with everyone for whom the truth is maybe not yet true. God with every woman who's hunched over a sewing mask. And every person on a ventilator. In every lonely ICU bed. God with every healthcare worker holding the hands of the dying in proxy for their families. And every janitor cleaning up someone else's puke. And every grocery store worker behind a plexiglass screen still showing up for work and every worker who's been laid off and everyone who is laying awake at night wondering how to pay their bills and every leader who's just trying to do their best. God, with every immigrant kid who's trapped in a detention center and every refugee who's turned away at the very last door and every gay kid being sent away to conversion therapy, convinced God hates them and every sex worker and every addict and every victim of abuse at the hands of religious leaders and every foster kid with a garbage bag full of their treasures and every protester who is crying out in the streets still that black lives matter and every murdered and missing indigenous woman and girl and every person experiencing homelessness and every unheard, uncelebrated and ignored Imago Dei, image of God, finding the truest reality of love that abides in those thin places from the underside of life. God with those still mourning, with the scared, with the angry, with those who hold the great and terrible knowledge of the presence of love in our thin and weary places. On the days when I believe this, it's enough. On the days when I don't, it is still enough. Christ is risen, and we keep singing in our exile and in the country of grace. Amen. Now, if you have the email in front of you, you might want to click over to it. I shared a bunch of music. Listen, I grew up in charismatic Pentecostal traditions, and I've got to have some gospel music on Easter Sunday legally required. So if you need me, I'll be in the aisle singing loud and waving my hands in the air because grief sings gospel. It is the rules. But I also have a benediction for you. God with us. May you know it and experience it.
Thanks, friends. I'm glad you spent Easter with me.